0: It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, joined by the second most handsome doctor in North America, Dr. Austin Baraki. What's going on, man? Hey, man. I'm here. He's, he's present. <laughs> he is online. This is episode 202. We're talking about dietary supplements. I know. I know we're doing it finally. People have asked, and here we are, but it's not what you think. We're not just going to be talking about gains, we're going to be talking about the real risks of dietary supplements, and I think this should be uh, pretty interesting. But before we get to that, some announcements, and uh, hey, we're welcoming a new sponsor to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, Pioneer Belts. The folks over at General Leathercraft uh, signed on to sponsor the Barbell Medicine Podcast, and uh, we're big fans of them. In fact, it's funny, their owner actually slid in my DMs like a a year ago, and I was like, hey, just thanks for everything that you guys do, it's really helpful for not only my training, but also just our customer stuff. And that's really great. Thanks. And I was like, an unsolicited thank you? Oh my <laughs> gosh. Thank you. I feel so much better now. But uh, they sell belts primarily over there. Uh, and it's interesting. They've got such a wide selection of belts as far as thicknesses, uh, different closure attachments. So everything from eight and a half to 13 millimeters thick. They got lever belts, single prong belts, double prong belts, new custom designs. They even sent me this guy. Check this guy out. Nah. Well done. I know that's I'd have, right. They did it. Uh, it's funny because um, they uh, they emailed me when I when I I bought it myself, um, and they were like, "Hey, this logo is trademarked. You know, can you get can you get the owner to sign <laughs> like, off on me. it?" I was like, "It, it, it me." <laughs> but yeah, it came out really nice. I prefer a thirteen millimeter single prong belt. You're a thirteen millimeter lever belt. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think I mean, but I've, I've also I've also periodically when we travel and I don't bring a belt, I use yours and I'm perfectly satisfied using that, too. So I'm yeah. not particularly picky. I
0: like single prong stuff as well. Yeah, I started out using a double prong belt from another manufacturer. It's just an extra prong. And I was like, I don't get this. And then uh, but yeah, always four inches. Uh, wide 13 millimeters thick. That's my standard belt recommendation for folks. They're like, do I need a three inch belt, a two and a half inch belt? I have not come across anybody, an adult anyway, that needs like a three inch belt or two and a half inch wide belt. But you know, if you feel more comfortable with that, I'm not going to yuck your yum as the, uh, as my people from the Midwest say. So, but four inches wide, 13 millimeters. That's my... My th- the thickness that I recommend uh for people who are really interested in chasing strength gains, but you know if uh, it's more of a recreational pursuit, I think ten millimeters is fine. I probably wouldn't go any thinner than that, outside of like, I guess weightlifting. But even when I did weightlifting, I still wanted the ten millimeter thick belt. You know, maybe maybe a tapered belt, but at the same time, like. Eh. Uh, but yeah, they're American-made lifetime warranty. They ship worldwide. They also have wrist wraps and wrist straps. And, you know, if you want to support those who support this podcast, you can head over, see Matt and the crew at GeneralLeatherCraft.com. We'll link that in the description below. If you get a belt, because and now this would be a great time to order a belt for the holiday season, make sure you tell them Barbell Medicine sent you. We don't have a code or anything like that, but uh, if you drop a little nuance in the, in the, the customer notes box, that would uh, be helpful for us uh other things so we've got some more live in-person seminars coming up we've got a new pain and rehab seminar coming to miami florida that's at the end of january We're all, we'll also be uh in atlanta and new york in 2023 so far for our two-day health and performance seminar so if you're interested in joining us at one of our live in-person events you can check that out in the description below we've got a bunch of new youtube videos up including some training vlogs and uh, some other seminar content and then also you're famous now I think officially you're famous. So thing one, you're, you were back on the curbsiders talking about low back pain. Um, we have previously been on there. It was sarcopenia, right? Yeah. And then now you're episode 368 it's just low back pain in primary care or what's the, what's, do you know the title? Yeah, the,
1: the, the curbsiders podcast is done by internal medicine docs and it's generally, you know, targeted towards clinicians, uh, mainly in the, in the primary care setting. And so I've been contacted about a, you know, potential of like a, an update podcast on, on the topic in line with, you know, the most current evidence and things like that. So went on and had that conversation with the folks over there, um, for a, a repeat appearance on that podcast. And, and I did something that I very rarely, if ever do, and I actually listened to that podcast today to see how it came out. And I was quite happy with it. Um, there's not a ton that I would, that I would, uh, you know, change. There's of course some, some editing done on there and for, for length and conciseness and things like that, but overall pretty pleased with the, the take home messages that I kind of was able to, to get across. So for anybody who is, is in our audience, and is a clinician of any kind who sees people, with back pain um etc that would be a highly recommended resource i think in my uh quite biased opinion
0: <laughs> yeah i mean it's pretty accessible i listened to half of it so far um the interesting thing to me is that you're on this podcast and they're coming at you from a uh a a physician's perspective and so mm-hmm. if you yeah. were if you're like a health health professional or fitness professional and you're wondering like well, what are how do doctors approach this i think that's like is a peek behind the curtain on some mm-hmm. some level. so you might have consumed all the barbell medicine content previously and feel very comfortable dealing with back pain but it might be nice to know what are the physicians thinking and how are they coming at this and i think you know there in the first half there was some interesting sort of like I I would call them leading questions maybe, or like suggestions put (laughs) forth. And uh, yeah, I thought that was, it's pretty, it's a pretty good listen so far. So we'll link that as well. Uh, All right. We're going to hop into this thing. Episode 202. Can you believe it's 202 episodes? I mean, I guess so.
1: And when I think back, it's like, we've been doing it for a while. I don't know. It's it's a big number, but I'm like, yeah, I buy it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I know. I think we started this end of 2016, maybe the, I was still at UCLA. Um, I guess we just haven't stopped yet. (laughs) <laughs> so <laughs> episode 202, we're going to talk about safety of dietary supplements. We'll do a separate podcast on actual supplement recommendations. We'll, we'll get into that a little bit at the end. Uh, so if you're looking for the podcast on here are the supplements you should take for health and performance, that's going to be a separate thing. Because as you may or may not know, there are, are a number of supplements that we feel like have decent evidence supporting their use if for health uh, promotion and or performance uh, improvements. And that probably deserves its own separate Topic and before we hop in, just a conflict of interest. Herbal uh, medicine currently sells supplements. We have them on our website. Uh, they do meet all the criteria that we're going to go through as far as like what come, uh, like what constitutes a safe supplement and an effective supplement. But at the same time, you know, I cannot withhold that information from people. Like, oh yeah, Joe, we we happen to sell a supplement. What's the what's this? What's the conflict of interest there? So, um, in any case, let's pop into this. So first off, what is A dietary supplement. A dietary supplement is defined as a product taken by mouth that contains a dietary ingredient such as vitamins, minerals, botanicals, amino acids, or enzymes that, according to the US Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, are not intended to treat or prevent disease. A lot of people use dietary supplements, approximately 75% of Americans reported taking dietary supplements in the previous year, and it contributes to an over $35 billion a year supplement market. I know when people think about like big pharma, they're like, there's so much money behind that. And that is true, but there's big supplement too. And if you don't think that supplement manufacturers are lobbying to avoid certain regulations and certain constraints, uh, I I got another story for you. So a lot of money, a lot of people using this. It was actually an interesting paper I read. It said at least half of your patients that you would see in a primary care clinic are taking some sort of dietary supplement, and so needs to be on your, like, to-do list to ask about, for sure. Uh, as far as supplement safety background, you know, a lot of people listen to this are like, well, they're just not regulated at all. There's no regulations it's the Wild West, which maybe a decent way to kind of summarize uh, things if you're if you're a cynic but it's not entirely true so in the united states for example dietary supplements are classified as food and are therefore not subject to pre-market testing and regulation by the fda so before the supplement actually comes on the market before you can buy it however they are still regulated by the fda uh, via post-market surveillance so once they're available for sale The FDA is actively, uh, although, you know, maybe underfunded and understaffed, they're actively looking at the supplements on the market, trying to make sure that these things are safe. Um, That said, supplements do not have to be proven safe or effective by the FDA uh, prior to being placed on the market. This is the opposite of how pharmaceutical drugs and their regulation works. Um, Claims made about the supplement do not need to be regulated or approved by the FDA prior to market. Uh, In fact, any claims made in advertisements are regulated by the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, Every supplement is labeled, must be labeled with the term dietary supplement or similar term that describes the product's dietary ingredient, ergo herbal or vitamin supplement, something like that. And finally, a supplement cannot be marketed as a treatment or cure for a specific disease. Those supplement manufacturers do not need to obtain FDA approval prior to making or selling their supplement. So the too long didn't listen to that is All of the regulation pretty much takes place after the product comes to market. Uh, FDA can issue a class one recall and take a supplement off the market if it has the potential to cause harm. So, because again, supplements are classified as food, uh, you may uh, liken this to some foods that have been found to have things like listeria in it or salmonella or some other sort of outbreak. It's the same type of recall, but this happens in supplements all the time. And in fact, when I pulled this up, oh man. (laughs) Some really interesting things. So for example, this supplement called 365 Skinny was issued a class one recall because it had cebutramine in it. And cebutramine is a now withdrawn pharmaceutical. It's a sympathomimetic. So basically increases your heart rate, increases blood pressure, and uh, was was, uh, a a fat loss medication. But yeah, it's been withdrawn from the market due to not only lack of efficacy, but also severe side effects. But yeah, this weight loss drug, weight loss supplement rather, had that in it. Uh, Of course, it was not on the label because if it was on the label, the FDA and the FTC would have been like, hey, man, what what are you doing? So anyway, that was post-market. Another supplement called Alpha Male Plus, which had unsurprisingly uh, a class one recall because it had undeclared Tadalafil uh, in it, which is the active ingredient in Cialis. (laughs) Yeah, people take it. They're like, hey, man, this stuff works. Like, well, yeah, it has the active ingredient from Cialis in it, just not any sort of regulated dosage. And you're not sure of the purity because, again, they're not the pharmaceutical company who makes the drug. Uh so yeah, that's one of many that man they they've kept uh the FDA's kept an active list of this stuff since 2007 and uh it I I was clicking through the thing. There's over 50 pages of just lists. The latest one uh was issued on November 21st of this year is to Jacked Male Supplement. So it's J A C K apostrophe D and uh one of their male supplements had again unsurprisingly Tadalafil in it, just more Cialis just pumped in there, um, and so yeah, there there is active regulation. So I don't want people to think like, yep, nobody's regulating anything. It's just yeah, if you're doing it once the products are already on the market, it is much more difficult to kind of control that gate to the to the public marketplace than if you're doing it on the front end. Um, so in any case, the FDA uh, is involved a small amount in pre market regulation, uh, effectively. Um, They have the authority to uh, have established the good manufacturing practices, uh, so that's GMPs, in an effort to limit supplement contamination, verify the accuracy of labeling, and set standards for monitoring and reporting adverse events associated with supplement use. However, not every company, not even close, actually adheres to these good manufacturing practices. Uh, In fact, a 2013 FDA report showed that approximately 70% of all supplement manufacturers were in violation of GMPs, and additionally, 28% of supplement companies they surveyed failed to even register with the FDA, which uh, is necessary to be a part of this GMP uh, certification. Uh, You would actually see this on a uh, label of a supplement, for example, Um, but in any case, yeah, not nearly every supplement company is adhering to this. So this means a relatively large amount of dietary supplements are not meeting GMPs or even registered, and thus may be contaminated, mislabeled, or both. As we'll see, this is very common. Uh, but the kind of nidus or impetus for doing this podcast was a really interesting recent case series that came out um, in the American Journal of Medicine. So Austin, you kind of brought this to my attention. This was from the United States Drug-Induced Liver Injury Network, the Dillon, if you will. I don't know if anyone calls it that, but I certainly would because like saying drug-induced liver injury network is a, is a mouthful. So this paper recently came out. What What did they go over there?
1: Yeah. So, so this came to my attention and passed it on to you. And and it was just interesting because it hits on this topic of supplements in general that we talk about a lot, as well as something that I actually see in, in practice, uh, fairly regularly, I would say. And so this, um, idea of a drug induced liver injury, um, which you said DIL-in for the network. You, I mean, Dilly is a known, uh, acronym that, that is said in medicine. And if you talk to an internist like me and you talk about a Dilly, then we're going to know that you mean a drug induced liver injury. And that includes, you know, things like supplements and, 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 vitamins and things like that, that, that people are taking.
0: Did you have something to say there? <laughs> no, it's, it's just like, so you would, you would just call it a Dilly network. Yeah, Dilly Network is probably what I, I would just say. feel like we should workshop that a little bit. Okay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so so, any so case.
1: This, this paper was in the American Journal of Medicine from uh, October fourteenth of this year. And the title is "Liver Injury Associated with Turmeric: A Growing Problem." Ten cases from the Drug-Induced Liver Injury Network, and so they lay some groundwork. And, and this is something that you know probably a fair number of our audience have at least peripherally heard of turmeric or cur- curcumin. Supplementation, it's an herbal product. It's a spice that people use in various kinds of cooking as well, but it's taken as a supplement for lots of conditions, um, things like arthritis, infections, respiratory infections, general "quote unquote" inflammation that people perceive themselves to have or are told that they have, whether or not they truly do. For prevention of COVID, among among a bunch of other things, it's one of those uh, one of those things that it's recommended for so many things that makes it pl- practically implausible that it can simultaneously treat all those things yeah. like since it, they uh, manifest via different mechanisms but that's yeah, a very it, common recommendation
0: <laughs> if it works if it's a panacea if it works for everything there's a high likelihood that it works for nothing correct yeah <laughs> exactly like if your treatment for everything is always the same thing that it's kind of like yeah. man yeah. i don't have high confidence that this works for anything but right in any yeah. in any case pretty safe it's a pretty safe supplement as far as like just actual turmeric itself but that's not really the problem the problem is like what else is in there
1: yeah, exactly. I mean, when they've done ter- trials of turmeric supplementation in humans, it, it generally does not seem to show significant, you know, levels of, of toxicity. But this may also be an artifact of the fact that it is pretty poorly absorbed. And so, even in the the supplement scene, the fitness scene, I have seen this, uh, uh, you know, recommendation made to take it with a bunch of black pepper, um, or some of these supplements contain this black pepper derivative called piperine which is a substance that itself can dramatically increase turmeric absorption. So if you take a dose of turmeric with 20 milligrams of piperine, it can increase the bioavailability of the turmeric by 20 fold or more. Um, And so this is a common thing in, you know, pharmacology whereby, you know, uh, two different substances can have interactions at various levels of their path through the body in terms of their absorption, in terms of their metabolism, in terms of their uh, distribution, and in terms of their excretion. Those are things that can be impacted by these sorts of interactions. And so a common recommendation is, oh, if you take it with this, then you'll absorb more of it. Of course, this is very difficult to, uh, you know, have a very tight control over. And it is unlikely that many of these supplements that may contain both um, have done rigorous you know, trials to determine um, what is the precise relationship between these two, how much is the absorption being impacted, and, and what's the downstream consequences of that.
0: Yeah. And so anytime just, you – go ahead. Just a, qu- just a quick thing. And, and it, it's because they don't have to. Right. So so you don't have to go through a phase one clinical trial like you do with uh, pharmaceuticals bec- to prove that it's safe. You don't have to go through a phase two clinical trial in a smaller group to not only continue to assess safety, but also then efficacy uh, on some levels. And then phase three, you don't have to do that either to continue to refine dosage and efficacy or whatever. You don't have to do any of that because you could just bring it to market. And on top of that, the general public is still going to buy it anyway. That you know, because you don't have an informed customer, and you don't have any of this pre-market regulation. That's why these things have not been well studied uh, prior. And so, in addition to all this anecdotal stuff, we're like, "Oh yeah, it worked for me. I took this, then this thing happened that worked for me." But uh, sometimes those things that happen to you are undesirable. Not awesome. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah so so dramatically increasing the absorption of this can increase the effective dose that you get and so to the extent that it has any benefits sure you may get more of those benefits if if they existed and we'll we'll get to that but it also dramatically increases all the other effects that you may not have known could happen or may not want the basically the increases the risk of toxicity and so in this study by the US Dilly Network or whatever uh, abbreviation you, you prefer to call it by, <laughs> <Dylan>. <laughs> they found um, in in the registry that they that they uh, were were following, they found ten cases of turmeric associated liver injury. Um, of the ten cases, eight of these patients were women, nine were white, and the median age was around fifty six years old. Um, a lot of times, patients who are Uh, you know, evaluated for a significant drug-induced liver injury, uh, they may undergo a liver biopsy, um, depending on the trajectory of their blood tests and and how they're doing kind of clinically. Um, And taking a liver biopsy is not a, uh, you know, totally... Uh, simple procedure. You're obviously taking a bite out of somebody's liver and and preparing it under a slide and looking at it under a microscope. And and these biopsies showed evidence of inflammation of the liver tissue, which is generally termed hepatitis. So we have a bunch of immune cells entering the tissue, a whole bunch of damage to the structure of the liver itself. Um, Five of these 10 patients were hospitalized, uh, and one of them actually died of Complete liver failure, um, which is one of the most horrific ways uh, to die. I've seen it happen in other contexts from Tylenol uh, overdoses, which is oh. pretty hor- horrific, um, among other things relating to alcohol and, and other kinds of um, uh, hepatitis infections and things like that. So it's really gnarly. Um, so in this, in this uh, set of 10 patients, the time to developing turmeric-associated uh, liver injury was anywhere from one to four months um, after they began using the supplement. So it's not like they took the first dose and immediately got sick. It, it kind of took a little bit of time, which is actually the typical trajectory for a lot of these kinds of toxicities, whether they affect the liver, which is very common, or they affect the kidneys, which is also quite common, um, or, or other aspects of, of physiology. It usually is, is not a hyper-acute thing, like you take a dose and, and this happens, but rather it's a kind of a cumulative effect over time that takes a little time to build up and become severe enough to where you have symptoms and then you get checked out and this is detected.
0: Hmm. So, so these people had the, the biopsy done and, and a number of them were actually just straight up correlated with. They basically as- ascribe the cause to the tumor, yeah, supplement.
1: so so this can be this is this is part of the overall evaluation. I mean, I see this kind of a presentation, and I admit these patients to the hospital somewhat frequently, where somebody comes in, maybe they're not feeling great, maybe they got some labs done, and it showed that their liver um, liver numbers are not looking very good or they're getting worse or they're looking alarmingly high, and you get admitted, and you undergo a, a battery of you know actually a pretty massive list of, of lab testing, sero, ser, various serological testing, usually imaging, ultrasound, sometimes MRI of the, the liver and abdomen. Um, and as things come back more and more and more negative and you rule out more and more and more things, um, and to the extent that you're able to detect a supplement history, then that tends to rise higher and higher and higher on the you know the list of uh, probable, uh, probable di- diagnoses until you've ruled pretty much everything else out. And so in this in this patient group, they actually did some other genetic analysis and they found that there's a particular genetic predisposition um, that they had. And this is uh, known as HLA-B3501, which is, you don't need to know or memorize, but just to recognize that there are certain kinds of genetic variants that people can have. And this can increase their risk of toxicity, in this case, liver injury due to turmeric use, because they found this particular variant at a way, way, way higher frequency among these patients compared to what would be expected in the general population mm-hmm. and this is something that is also seen in other contexts in medicine there are certain drugs that we actually use pharmaceuticals that we use um, to treat tr- to treat um, patients and for those who are likely to have, or who may have those kind of genetic polymorphisms or genetic variations, we'll actually test them before we start the drug because we don't want to start the drug in somebody who may be at high risk of having toxicity. And if they're negative, then we'll, you know, continue it. So there are a few, you know, well-known medicines, um, for, for which we do pre pre pre-treatment testing of HLA B 5701, 5801, things like that for, for other drugs.
0: Can you imagine if there was like a, it wouldn't be a black box warning, but it would be like a a label on the outside of the supplement where said, Hey, before you start this turmeric curcumin, uh, go, you need to go get a serology done, you need to yeah. make sure that you don't have this genetic polymorphism because you're at high risk of this problem. having If that were true, like if you had to show up with mm-hmm. like a piece of paper that said you had this serology and you don't have that genetic polymorphism, now you can buy the thing. Turmeric sales would go, I mean, it would, they, all the companies <laughs> would be out of business if that was their, yeah. s- their solo therapy. Um, yeah, yeah, that's probably people, true.
1: Although all no. ten of these people would probably have never experienced this uh, <laughs> this this harm that they did.
0: <laughs> well, so this begs the question, though: like, is there good evidence for turmeric supplementation? Period.
1: Right. So, so that's the consideration anytime we're using some sort of a pharmaceutical agent or supplement or something like that. To the, I mean, ev- there's nothing that is risk free, right? So, to the extent that something has no side effects, if somebody tells you this has no side effects, it probably has no effects at all, right? Because mm. the differentiation between effect and side effect is. Purely arbitrary and based on what we want the drug to do and what we don't want the drug to do. We call it an effect or side effect, but drugs just have effects, Mm -hmm. and so you would prefer that the benefit profile that somebody is getting outweighs the potential downside. Or to the extent that there are downsides, there are they are tolerable, they are not harmful they're ideally not causing you to go into complete liver failure. And so I could envision a world in which turmeric is curing everything under the sun, in which case it's like, you know, it sucks to be one of these 10 people, but on balance, like the world has been saved (laughs) by this, or at least we can institute pre-treatment screening for these genetic things Mm -hmm. and reduce the risk as much as we can. And then we'll take all this benefit. We'll reduce the risk as much as we can. There may still be somebody who has bad luck, but you know, world's not fair like that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if that were the case then I could make that justification. But there really aren't good clinical data in humans to support the use of turmeric for essentially any disease condition. And I know that there are some people who just got riled up. There are some people who are convinced oh. that they've seen excellent data. It works. And, <laughs> and people f- for whom they feel better when they take it, for for who who have maybe seen their um you know, somebody that they follow in the fitness space, in the social media scene, posting, uh, recommending people take this and putting a PubMed, you know, link or a DOI or something like that. Um, And so while turmeric and curcumin do have anti-inflammatory and antioxidant activity in lab data, in vitro data, in petri dishes and things like that, there is a pretty distinct lack of really good clinical data for these agents for the prevention, um, or treatment of inflammatory disorders in humans. And so this is, again, we have ranted about this before. It seems, you know, I, I thought I felt that itch where it was just like, we need to have another mechanistic rant. And so it's it had to come back around eventually. That's right. But the idea of, you know, looking at what is the effect of this treatment, this medication, this modality, whatever the case is on an outcome that actually matters, right? So this disease state, for example, and not on some you know, a a biomarker in a Petri dish or something like that. So we are most interested in, you know, human outcome data on outcomes that humans themselves care about, where if you asked the person, do you feel different? Do you feel better? Are you living better? Are you living longer? Are you more functional? Whatever the case is um, compared to a placebo, for example, we would like to see superiority on that. And so like, for, for example, one randomized controlled trial of turmeric termed, uh, curcuma longa extract, which is the mm. actual, you know, plant name, uh, was given in patients with osteoarthritis, which is a pretty common reason why people will take curcumin or turmeric and they'll pair it with piperine and things like that. And these were patients who had the, uh, the osteoarthritis of the knee and had some fluid accumulation in their knee, which is a common thing, um, in patients with arthritis. And it did find a benefit on pain. So there was, uh, basically a nine out of 100 Benefit. So they used this thing called a visual analog scale where it was, say, you had to rate your pain on a scale of one to 100, uh, will nine point decrease. Um, if it was, you could make an analog, say it was a one to 10 scale and it reduced it by 0. 0.9. And so this is technically below what is usually deemed a minimum, you know, clinically important difference, but it was a difference nonetheless. Um, and there's no significant effect on the volume of fluid in the knee or the effusion volume. Um, there are plenty of other data um, from, you know, these kind of trials that show, not super impressive effects on things in humans, or at least to the extent there's an effect, it's like we probably have something that is you know safer that has a more more substantial effect um, yeah. on 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 people's symptoms or, or whatever the, the particular condition is that we're looking at.
0: Yeah, most of these papers will you know if in curcumin for example, they'll be measuring 20, 30, 40 different outcomes whether it's you know these are all like uh, metrics you can take from a blood test or for from some other sort of analysis plus some functional stuff which is just like how are you feeling how's your pain etc like that and so if you're measuring that many things you are bound to get lucky on one or more of those things and find some statistically significant difference and that doesn't mean one that any of those things are clinically significant but it also sort of opens this pandora box where you're like okay well you measured you know 40 different things and you found two things were significant is that a real signal or did you just get lucky and so yeah. you know you start looking at confidence intervals and stuff like that and you're like oh man ugh, i don't feel very com- confident about this and so, and you'd so want just, is, in those situations you'd want it to replicate
1: and, exactly. over and over and over again and things like that and that would increase your confidence for sure yep exactly if you had a
0: bunch of studies all showing the same thing this robust reliable persistent signal then you know you feel very confident in that. And if you don't see that, which is exactly what we see with turmeric, for example, and many of these supplements that we'll actually discuss, then you're like, eh, on balance, I think it's not helpful helpful at all. And there's obviously some significant risk here, uh, you know, which has been demonstrated via this, these prospective Trials. Um, in fact, ten-year data from U.S. emergency departments estimated that 23,000 visits were due to adverse effects from dietary supplements, and r- resulted in 2,100 plus different hospitalizations. And you're like, oh co- so the risk isn't zero. You mean there there are some potential side effects?" And we're like, "Yeah, that's that's what's happening." And and even with the drug like drug induced liver injury, even with the dilly, like this this is actually a pretty good data set um, that they collected over almost 20 years. There are thousands of like drug, well, in this case, dietary supplement associated liver injuries that have been like very well linked and very well established. And so we're kind of like, man, people should be a little more careful.
1: Yeah. In the, in the paper that I'm, that I, you know, uh, was, was describing above regarding this case series in, in turmeric or curcumin, they describe how the the Dilley network has, you know, they they had logged almost 2,400 cases of suspected drug induced liver injury. And basically each of those has to undergo kind of formal evaluation to see what is the likelihood that this drug induced liver injury was specifically caused by this substance. And they try to stratify that by confidence, right? Because we can't always be 100% confidence, confident in the causation between something like that and a drug induced liver injury. Um, But of the cases that they deemed to be very high confidence, they were very confident that the substance itself caused the drug-induced liver injury, almost 20%, so almost 350 out of the 2400, so almost 20% 20 were attributed to an herbal and dietary supplement. Um, And so again, it's like I can hear somebody saying, okay, if 20% were due to an herbal and dietary supplement, that means 80% were probably due to pharmaceutical drugs. And it's like, yeah. Uh, that is probably that happens. the case that happens, uh, yeah. It is known that pharmaceutical drugs can cause drug-induced liver injury I can rattle off a very long list of them that uh, I have you know seen and, and probably a, a, a fraction of some that that I have caused um, through you know practice and, and prescribing these things however the difference is that when these pharmaceuticals are prescribed they should be for a very clear, reason with an established uh, uh, you know, benefit on a condition that is relevant to the person that has a known impact to improve a real outcome in humans um, and to and in and a situation where that potential adverse effect, that potential side effect of, of liver toxicity is known. And we would do whatever we could to mitigate that, be it lowest dose, lowest duration, whatever the case is. And sometimes again, there's people who have bad luck, but the, the calculus is different when there are clearly established potential benefits, clearly established potential, harms. This is a, you know, informed kind of discussion and you weigh those things out explicitly compared to the supplement case where there are often a lack of established benefits or none, um, to the extent that it has been studied. And now we see a, uh, a, an increased risk of adverse effects. And so the calculus changes a little bit in that situation, particularly when there's nothing informed about it.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, th- the other thing with like known like hepatoxic or liver toxic medications that have a higher risk of causing a, a dilly you know that that is a risk and you're monitoring for it at regular intervals just to make sure that you don't get too far up the stream without any sort of like life vest. Like, Oh, all right, we'll, we'll get off the boat. Let's Mm -hmm. do something else or let's have some mitigation uh, treatment with supplement use. You're like not even suspecting it because Hey, it's herbal. it's, It's, it's natural. It's, you know, over the counter can't be, can't be dangerous. And it's like, well, not only can the actual supplement itself be dangerous, but as we'll see, like the, being contaminated or mislabeled or and or both can pose a significant risk and if you're not monitoring this stuff which you why would you be you could find yourself in in you know an interesting position and uh yeah so so pretty interesting data set now you ask people for this their supplement history i assume when you when you meet a new patient you're asking for their medication history to get that and then you're like any supplements I assume that. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And, and, and it needs to be pretty explicit. And I often ask it in multiple different ways and I'll often give examples and things like that because it's really common. I mean, people would be amazed when we, when we do these kind of histories with folks, they'll say, no, I don't take anything. And it's like, what about a vitamin? Yes. I take a vitamin. What about fish oil? Yes. I take a fish oil and blah, 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 blah. Same with um, other medications. No, I don't take any medicines. And then it's like, oh, what about this? What about that? They have that. And then if I have a patient who does definitely have evidence of liver injury, if I'm seeing them more in an ER or hospital setting not just like a routine primary care, my, uh, you know, questioning about supplement use and herbal use and stuff like that goes way up. And this is for both liver stuff and often for, for kidney related issues as well. We're not really getting into it a ton in this, in this particular podcast, but there have been many, um, you know, supplements and herbals, a ton from Chinese medicine that have been implicated in various forms of, of kidney mm-hmm. failure. There was one many years ago that was, you know, initially became identified when all these women started showing up in complete kidney failure needing dialysis and it was identified as a component of a weight loss herbal called aristolochic acid that would, had mm-hmm. to be end, end up getting removed because nobody had ever heard of this thing, nobody knew what it did. And then before you knew it, you had a whole list of women who were needing dialysis and kidney transplants as a result of this, you know, purported weight loss supplement. So yeah. this is a super common thing and routine aspect of my questioning for sure.
0: This, this is like a medical student's worst nightmare. You like go to see the patient first, and you're like, are "You taking any supplements?" And they're like, <laughs> "Nope." Yeah. And, and then the attending comes in and is like, "So are you taking fish oil? Yeah. Uh-huh. Are you taking a multivitamin?" <laughs> Uh Uh-huh. Are you taking turmeric? We've all Uh been there. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. Happens all the time. Um, So as we get a little more uh, into the safety data, you know, I, I would say that the majority of the safety issues surrounding dietary supplements are due to either contamination with unapproved ingredients and or mislabeling of the supplement themselves. So the contamination... Uh, of a supplement means that an ingredient that is not accounted for on the label, such as bacteria, a pharmaceutical adulterant or actual you know, prescription medication or heavy metal has been found in the supplement in amounts that are above an acceptable cutoff level. That's in particular for heavy metal. Uh, usually those are zero or otherwise very low in most cases. Um, obviously some uh, things that come from the earth, you know, earth's crust has a lot of heavy metals. And so um, yeah, the, usually those, those levels are very, very low, but uh, contamination is definitely a big cause for concern. Uh, Whereas in contrast, accuracy of the labeling refers to the ingredients and the dosing of a particular product because nearly all of the FDA led supplement monitoring occurs after a supplement hits the market. It's up to the manufacturer to make sure that a product is safe accurately labeled and works as described. So as far as contamination goes, the data here is striking. Um, In a 2018 study, researchers analyzed data from an FDA database on dietary supplements that have been tainted with pharmaceuticals that have been identified by the agency from the years 2007 to 2016. During this period, 776 dietary supplements were found to contain one or more unlisted pharmaceutical drugs. Of these, The most common 86% were marketed for sexual enhancement or weight loss, and 12% were marketed for muscle building. The most common adulterants were sildenafil, uh, which is the active ingredient in Viagra uh, that was found in sexual enhancement supplements, Uh, sibutramine, which again was that sympathomimetic used to be used for weight loss, but found out didn't really work, and also Uh, had a ton of side effects. Those were, that was found in weight loss supplements pretty commonly and synthetic steroids or steroid-like ingredients from muscle-building supplements. It's like the person's like, oh, I love this pre-workout or I love this particular workout supplement. I really put on a ton of mass and it's like, that may in fact be true uh, (laughs) if there's like a designer steroid in it. But what you didn't know is that your liver values went off the charts, you know, for example, or you had some other uh, side effects brewing under the hood that you weren't really aware of and then, you know, bad things can happen down the road. Um, Overall, about 20%, Uh, contained more than one unapproved ingredient. So it's not just that, oh, they got one thing in them. Sometimes they have multiple things in there. There are sleep aids that have benzodiazepines in them or actual sleep medications. There are weight loss drugs that have, you know, thyroid hormone in there or, you know, this other sort of- terrifying, honestly. It is <laughs> absolutely terrifying. Um, so if you're looking at like overall, about 20% of all dietary supplements available for purchase are likely contaminated. Uh, but in my estimation, this is likely a significant underestimation due to underreporting, lack of research. And there's really, again, no pre-market sort of, uh, verification going on. So effectively we're just the, the, the if we just look at like the peop- the supplements that are scanned and, and the supplements that we catch, yeah, it's about 20%, but like, I would suspect that number is higher, 30%, 40%. And I would even still say, man, that seems a little low. If we look at a global market, that's probably just in the U S. But if you're ordering something from like anabolic labs from, you know, overseas, it's like, Hmm, Already my spidey sense is tingling, and I feel like it's a high likelihood there's something in there that you may think that you want, but probably actually don't. All right, so that is for contamination. Um, And again, mislabeling is a whole nother separate topic, and so if we look at just that, mislabeled supplements uh, is – probably even more common. And so if we look at the liver injury data set, we'll use that U.S. Drug Induced Liver Injury Network prospective study, the DILI network, if you will, or DILIN, as I'd like to put forth. (laughs) Uh, They looked at 348 supplements from 1,268 patients with suspected DILI or drug induced liver injury. Of the 348 supplements, only 272 of them actually had labels listing their ingredients. So like a substantial portion, were just like, yeah, no, take this. It's like, oh, <laughs> interesting. Uh, and subsequently, these 272 products underwent chemical testing at the University of Mississippi. Of these 272 labeled supplements, 140 were mislabeled lacking at least one of the listed compounds, 55 contained compounds not on the label at all, and the overall mislabeling rate was about 51%, which included known liver toxins like anabolic steroids, diclofenac, uh, which some people used to take for arthritis, and more. And that's not all, folks. If we look at CBD oil, people think, oh, CBD plants from the ground, probably super safe. Oh, no. A 2017 study tested 80 commercially available cannabidiol CBD products and found that only 31% of them had the CBD concentration accurately labeled. Over half the tested supplements found additional chemicals in the product that were not listed on the label. And that was 2017. How how many CBD manufacturers do you think there are now? Come on. And then finally, I found this one the most interesting. This is… Uh, on immune boosting supplements. So a total of 30 select dietary supplement products were evaluated. Only 43%, so 13 of the 30 of the products had accurate labels based on the product analysis. Of the 17 products with inaccurate labels, 13 had ingredients listed on the labels that were not detected through analysis. So they were lacking things such that their labels were misbranded. Uh, Ingredients missing from products range from one to six ingredients uh, from any single product. None of these products had third-party certification seal, so a third-party company like uh, BSCG, which stands for Banned Substance Control Group, NSF, National Sanitation Foundation, uh, Informed Sport, that's who we use for our supplements for third-party verification, or USP, which stands for US Pharmacopeia. So they had no third-party testing, whereas 16 products had other seals, such as number one doctor recommended brand, third-party tested, purity and potency, or stimulant free, or lab tested verified, or quality guaranteed in quotations. None of those are official labels.
1: It's like mm-hmm. it may as well just say, quote, trust me, bro. <laughs> trust,
0: it should say, trust me, bro. Be more accurate and less misleading. <laughs> um, so if you take all this data together, the present uh, evidence suggests that anywhere between 30 to 50% of all supplements are incorrectly labeled. And on top of that, if you combine that with the uh, the contamination data, that is not A great outlook on supplements overall. Um, Fortunately, the FDA has maintained a tainted supplement list since 2007, which contains nearly a thousand dietary supplements and and hundreds of different brands that were found to be contaminated, mislabeled, or both. Um, We've linked that in the description below. I believe it's called Health. uh, Was it Health Supplement Fraud? Health Fraud Database. So you guys can check that out if you really want to see some of these labs that have been um, uh, or supplement companies that have kind of put out some some stuff into the market that uh, they shouldn't have. So We go over all this data, not to just, not to scare you, but to try to give you some tools here at the end on like, how can you decide if taking a supplement is a good idea? And I think first thing, and I think you'd agree with this, Dr. B, safety first. And and, yeah, and I think first, before you dig into PubMed or research or whatever, looking for like actual studied side effects or whatever, very easily look at the label. Is there a CGMP seal? If somebody has registered with the FDA and if someone is adhering to the good manufacturing practices, they're going to advertise it. They're going to put the seal on the on the bottle. We do the same thing. And every supplement that I've like either given the okay to or like said, yeah, that looks that looks decent, has the GMP there. Uh, particularly if they're from the United States. I don't know as much about international regulation because that's not where we do business with our supplement company, and I'm not privy to every country's regulations. But GMP certainly got to have that label on uh, whatever supplement you're purchasing, and then make sure it's got a third party testing label. It should be, again, NSF or Informed Sport uh, or USP. Those are the three big ones in the United States. And I know they all do with batch testing for quality control, meaning that every time you run a batch, they pull X amount of samples and they make sure that there's nothing in it that shouldn't be in it. And also make sure that what you say is in there is in there. Uh, and the last thing here, it's got to have a label, guys. Like a clear label that tells you what's in the thing at what doses and whatever. If it's got a proprietary blend, just no no there's no look there's nothing new under the sun here all right and so if someone says proprietary hyper trophy cellular matrix and it's just got like a bunch of ingredients but no doses no take it off your list there's no it's reason steroids. to have it's probably <laughs> steroids yeah but you don't know what kind and you don't know what dose and so yeah. <laughs> don't yeah i 10 out of 10 would not recommend so again cgmp label third-party testing label and then the label itself should have all the ingredients and all the dosages. If it's got a proprietary label, there's other supplements available. Just move on. Um, So yeah, ideally, all supplement manufacturers would register with the FDA and meet the current GMP guidelines, uh, which should be clearly displayed. Um, And again, this in and of itself, though, does not confer like a safety, a pass for safety. You need that third-party testing. You need the clear label. Uh, and, And again, it just not not enough people or uh, supplement companies that are clearly still in business, so they're selling product are even registered or or adhering to GMP. So make sure that that is on the label, uh, and then for, finally, from a safety standpoint, you you got to make sure that whatever risk is known how you got to look at how that stacks up to the actual efficacy of the supplement that you're taking. Right. And so I think the first place you need to look at, if you're considering taking a dietary supplement after again, verifying the label and, and whatnot, is that, is there data in humans? Is there data in humans? Well, I don't care about what happens in mice. I don't care about what happens in macaque, you know, monkeys. I, I don't, <laughs> those can all be useful for generating hypotheses And then subsequently moving that to human testing. But if there's no data in humans, period, I'm like, probably not for you, bro. I can't think of a single time, even a pharmaceutical that's like has no human testing at all that we're like, hmm, that's it. That's my title. Absolutely correct. Yeah. (laughs) And, but that's not enough. It's not enough to just have data in humans, it has to show benefit to relevant outcomes, things we care about. I care far less about mechanistic data like, oh, it does this to lactate or IGF-1 or some other sort of cellular signaling molecule. I I really don't care unless that affects the downstream thing that I do care about, whether that's in performance like muscular hypertrophy, muscular strength, muscular power, cardiorespiratory fitness, lean body mass, body fat, something like that.
1: Or whatever the purported reason is that you're taking this
0: supplement. Exactly. And so when something says, oh, reduces inflammation, you're like, to what end? So for example, like, a, I uh, I think it's a tart cherry juice or whatever can reduce inflammation, but it's by such an infinitesimal amount. It's like, this isn't a clinically relevant effect, just like the turmeric reducing the visual analog scale pain rating by nine millimeters. Like yeah. that doesn't even sniff a minimally clinically important different. That's yeah. Just... And
1: this, this actually reminds me, our, our friends, the, uh, Nidulsky brothers, Carl Nadolski recently posted about a similar supplement contamination case where there was a supplement that was being advertised for, um, inflammation for arthritis, things like that. And people were taking, it. and then a fair number of people ended up developing, uh, Cushing's syndrome from it. And Cushing's syndrome is basically that, the, that this anti-inflammatory supplement indeed was very anti-inflammatory because it contained basically prednisone glucocorticoids, catabolic steroids, Mm -hmm. whatever you want to call it, which is super anti-inflammatory. Uh, and so sure, I bet they felt better. They probably also gained a bunch of weight, gained body fat, slept more poorly, (laughs) maybe had a little bit of some mood disturbance and, uh, and, uh, developed Cushing syndrome. So, um, yeah, there's there's some major, major problems in just about every realm of, of this sort of supplement deal. So I uh, strongly agree. We want data in humans and we want um, benefits for specific outcomes that we actually care about, not, you know, cellular, molecular signaling in vitro Petri dish stuff, which is really commonly touted by a lot of folks in the in the scene.
0: Yeah. And with respect to the relevant outcomes. What you need to see is that, uh, you know, a placebo-controlled study or something like that where you have one group who got a placebo, the other group got the supplement in this case, and then they measured that this supplement caused some sort of biologically plausible mechanism – by which it works right so it, it's the same thing with like vitamin d supplementation or whatever you can find studies where people got vitamin d and like one group maybe did a little bit better but their vitamin d levels didn't necessarily go up and so we're like well this whatever signal that we're seeing here that is not repeated in other data sets is not due to vitamin d and so what you'd want in the case of like creatine for example you'd want to see creatine levels go up in muscles that allows the muscular function to increase and allows these subsequent training improvements hypertrophy muscular strength muscular endurance to manifest more readily and that's exactly what you see in creatine studies for example and if you don't in see, excess
1: of what is seen with placebo exactly right. yes
0: and if you don't see that then it's like all right well yeah maybe you got data in humans that shows that it's you know it does something to relevant outcomes but if you don't have that sort of dosing uh, you know sort of provenance where it's like you gave the person the dose this happened you know uh, biologically and then here was the outcome I, I don't really know that you can hang your hat and be feel confident that the supplement actually did anything and the last thing and this is important guys make sure that the the adverse effect the side effect profile is well characterized you, the, you, every there are no biological free lunches here all right. So every supplement, every pharmaceutical, every intervention has some sort of effect. And not all of those are going to be ones that you want. And if it's not been characterized or someone says, again, there are no side effects, the trust me, bro. Uh, I think you got to take a pass on it. Every supplement that we recommend for health or performance, we know that there are some side effects, some that are greater than others, some that are more uh, significant than others, but we still know what they are. And that's why we can feel comfortable recommending them. And we always have caveats too, right? With most of our supplement recommendations. So we don't just say everybody in the world should take this full stop. Like it's just, yeah,
1: if somebody, <laughs> if somebody claims that it has no side effects, there are two possibilities. Number one, they're lying. Number two, there are no effects at all. Mm. That's literally the only two possibilities in that kind of situation.
0: Yep. Yep. So with respect to performance supplements, um, there are three places that I tend to go to and I would refer you guys to, and we'll definitely be leveraging these resources heavily in our supplement uh, uh, heavy podcast to come. Uh, One, the ISSN, the International Society of Sports Nutrition has a uh, 2018 Uh, position stand on dietary factors and supplementation for performance. They basically go through all of the currently available supplements and say, Hey, these ones have good evidence. These ones have bad evidence. These ones have no evidence. Here's, you know, what we think at this moment. There's also a 2019 Endurance Nutrition and Supplement Update review in Nature that is uh, very good for individuals who are uh, endurance uh, competitive endurance athletes. When we talk about carbohydrate supplementation, for example, and other uh, performance supplements. And then lastly, the 2018 International Olympic Committee IOC Consensus Statement, Dietary Supplements, and the High Performance Athlete. I've linked all of those in the description below. What you'll find is that the supplements in there with good evidence and good uh, safety data are the ones that we not only recommend, but also have included in our supplements. Those, and people will ask on all of my AMAs, well, what about X? And I'm like, yeah, there's a reason why X isn't in there, and it's not because I'm just ignoring data or whatever. It's because either the data doesn't exist on safety, the data doesn't exist on efficacy, or overall there's just not a lot of data. Period. And I cannot hang my hat on that and put something out into the into the world without you know sort of good faith due diligence, uh, doing some some background digging on that. So if it's not in our supplements, I don't think you're going to find something wrong. Like, yep, would recommend ten out of ten. I would have put it in there. We would, t- we would take it. We would take it. <laughs> We're not like holding out on you. Like, yeah, if you do this one weird trick with sodium, you're going to, you know, gains are going to go through the roof. We've been holding out on you. It's just incidentally, uh, you know, the latest blow up
1: with liver King, kind, oh, of, boy. kind of interesting there.
0: Did, <laughs> you, did you see that stack? Oh my God. I mean, it is not surprising because again, very clear. There's some polypharmacy going on and the it's just, the brazenness of that It's comical yes and there Mm -hmm. were
1: people who not only before were saying this is just what happens when you follow the ancestral lifestyle bro and now there are people oftentimes the same people who say i don't even care about that following the ancestral lifestyle is still good so these are people whose minds were never going to change no matter what standard lizard brain behavior
0: (laughs) well right but then you and then you ask them you know what is the ancestral diet and the uh, Just gibberish know. and if you can pin it down and then you say so this is an empirically answerable question which means we can use data to analyze the veracity of the statement and so then you say what is the data and they go either one of two ways i don't trust the data or i don't know the data and it's like it's like we've done this before <laughs> it's like we've done this before yeah
1: also must commend you on the unintentional pun of uh pinning it down
0: well done. Easy. do you like that <laughs> eh? Eh? okay cool well this has been episode 202 uh, we talked about safety uh, in supplements, and hopefully you guys found this helpful. But before we go anywhere, I want to really thank our new sponsor, Pioneer, uh, for helping us out. Uh, we're going to be getting some production gains and quality gains in our podcast because uh, of them signing on. So, again, support us or support those who support this podcast for all your belt needs. Again, make an excellent gift for the holiday season, for the lifter in your family or for you. Uh, hey, Austin, when, when people ask you when they should start using belts, do you get a, do you get a stock answer for that?
1: kind of a whenever they want sort of thing. I I don't tend to recommend that people wait to a particular time to start using them. Mm-hmm. I also don't you know um feel like it is a problematic if they want to start using them right away. Mm-hmm. And then even when people if should they choose to start using one? Another question we commonly get is like if I'm training, when should I put it on? Should I keep the belt off for some sort of Purported benefit until I get to my work set or my last warm up and then put it on. And I also don't really subscribe to the idea that there's any sort of special benefit to that. Um, if I'm training with a belt, then I will pull my first warm up set. Say it's the bar or 135 or 70 kilos or whatever, and then pretty much by the next jump, which is going to be still a far way from my my work sets, my my belt is on. I want things to be pretty similar to how they're going to be performed on the top set. So yeah.
0: Yeah, that's my same thing. I think if we agree that the belt has the potential to change the mechanics that you're using, and the existing evidence suggests that people will move the same weight at a higher velocity with a little bit better efficiency when they wear a belt, I want you to leverage that the whole way so things aren't changing from warm-ups to work sets. And the second thing I'll say is if you have a new belt, I think that's some extra time to get some break-in done on the belt if you're wearing it during warm-up sets. You know, put some heat into the belt, put some of your bodily sweat into the belt, get it to break in, make it feel nice. Uh, the last thing, and I, I'm curious to get your take on this. All right, so let's say you got a, fa- um, a family member who is resistance training curious. They're they're on the fence, they're thinking about getting involved or whatever, and you really want to push them over the edge. You know, you get them a belt and just say, hey, now you got a belt. My, my, reason, <laughs> my reasoning being that if... If we know, for example, that about fifty uh, percent of the, uh, the main reasons that people give um, for not engaging in resistance training is this risk of injury, they may feel more comfortable if they have a belt, you know, and if one's already there, ready to go. Do you think that makes a difference? For some people. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. I mean, even
1: though we don't have strong reason to believe that it would mitigate the risk of injury, if that's their perception and they feel more comfortable engaging that that's, that's a a, a reasonable way to go about it for that would probably resonate with some folks. I think that as we've talked about before, I mean, different people are going to have different um, perceived barriers to engaging in resistance training. So that may be the case for some and and not for others. But um, yeah, I mean, I got, I got one for my dad from this uh, organization uh, a couple of years back. And so I concur.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think if you're building a gear bag for like taking to the gym, I think you got a belt. I think you got shoes. I think you got knee sleeves, wrist wraps, and maybe wrist straps. And that's, and chalk, you know, some sort of chalk, whether it's liquid chalk or like a buffalo ball or whatever it is, or actual just loose chalk. And pretty much that's all you need to do your whole training career outside of like specialized tools that you want you know Uh, but that would be my like sort of base gym kit my everyday carry if you will oh I see you see what (laughs) I did there yeah so if you guys are looking for belts head over to Pioneer Uh, the website is generalleathercraft.com again leave them a note say uh, Barbell Medicine sent you and uh, they also do wrist wraps and wrist straps if you're in the market for that great great company Head a see matt and the folks over there really appreciate it and uh before you log off your smartphone please uh, subscribe to our podcast rate us and leave us a five-star review it really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you all the latest nuance in health and fitness for everyone here at barbell medicine thanks for listening we'll catch you next week and every week right here on the barbell medicine podcast